0: Welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, friend, and literary scholar, Sean. How are you today? Good. How the heck are you, Sam? Well, I'm doing all right, Sean. This is the second time we've talked in uh, about a week because something happened to us, which happens to all the great podcasters, which is we did an entire episode on a book in which... um, one of us did not, I guess, record our, our segment.
1: Yeah, it just ends up in that uh, elephant graveyard of content that's never to be seen <laughs> from the world.
0: A thousand percent. And honestly, literally every single podcast, like, I don't think you ac- can actually consider yourself a podcaster until you have a whole episode that you realize once you finished it that you fucked up somehow and you didn't have the episode at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's gone. Uh, maybe if we get like a Patreon one day. We can put it out there, give us, give us, I'll find the old file and I'll, give me five bucks. and you can hear me just uh, drunkenly warble about nothing.
0: <laughs> Although to be fair, I don't think we should do a podcast again about a book you didn't actually like, which was a Confederacy of Dunces. That was the, that was the, the podcast that we lost. Speaking of weird and fucked up shit, um, Let's just get right into our next book, which is uh, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this book, Sean, but they can all be summed up in one question to you because it was your pick, which is uh, what the fuck? Um,
1: I love this book, Sam. I, I mean, if
0: you had to like,
1: force me at gunpoint to name like top ten books, like this one's probably going to end up towards the back, but it's going to okay. make the list.
0: And, okay. Keep but, going. Uh, no, this no, was... Expound, sir. Just like this fucking book. Expound. <laughs>
1: right. Well, so this was the book for me essentially that made reading like fun again. Like it made it super interesting. Um, I can ask you a question. It's like you're a big movie guy. Like mm-hmm. was there ever a movie
0: like growing up that you saw that you were like, whoa, film could be this way? No question. It was The Usual Suspects. I was 12 years old. I was at home on like a Friday night cuz I was a dork and The Usual Suspects was playing on the USA network. So there were commercials and I'm sure it was heavily edited for cursing. Yet by the end of that movie, I realized like almost right away that I liked movies more than the average person. I was like I, my reaction to it was so strong. I it was almost like saying to yourself, um, you know what? Movies is going to be my thing. I loved that so much that I'm going to make this my thing. I mean, I can imagine it's like someone who watched a football game for the first time and loved it and was like, I will watch every football game from now on. That's how I was with the usual suspects.
1: Right, and the crying of Laugh 49, that's literature in a nutshell for me. Like, growing up as a teenager, I read a lot, but it was all mm-hmm. like Science fiction, fantasy, horror kind of stuff. And then this was actually given to me in uh, my English college course. And I was I was blown away. I was like, what is this? I had always heard of Pynchon, you know, kind of like in a uh, mythological kind of way. (laughs) In underground sex cults. Right. And but yet reading this book, I was like, I need more. Like, I, this is this is what exactly what I want in a book. I want more of this. So, so we, that's we why I talk, recommended it.
0: We could talk about the plot. However, I have a question for you before we talk about the plot because I think if we talk about the plot, we're going to get lost in a lot of weeds. But not only are we going to get lost in weeds, we might be getting away from the point of this book. Um, and my question to you is this. Should this book be read only being interpreted from line to line and what I mean by that is like when you're reading the book should you completely dispose of trying to figure out the plot in your head altogether and just enjoy it as if it's polemicism as if it's just witty asides or is it important in this book to try and keep the plot together in your head I think in a way
1: yes in a way no because when you say, like, line-by-line line reading, um, no disrespect for any of the other authors that we've read, but I really think, like, Pynchon, compared to a lot of authors, is they're making stick figures, and he's doing the Sistine Chapel. Like, I believe he is one of the most talented writers ever. You know, we can argue about that. But the plot in this book is is fascinating to me because... Pynchon has written about eight novels, and this is his shortest one by far, but in those eight novels, you can split them up into, like, two camps. There's, like, V, Gravity's Rainbow, Mason and Dixon, and Against the Day, which I would categorize as, like, historical fictions. There's strictly a plot, whether it's about war or, you know, uh, measuring uh, a border, Like, there's something that needs to be done. But then the other half of his writing, which The Crying of Lot 49 falls into, is this, like, weird comic detective holistic agencies where it's these everyday people that get enveloped in some sort of, like, wide-ranging mystery outside the scope that you would expect. So they're not like Sherlock Holmes where they're, like, uh, simple clues that, you know, lead up to like the deduction of a crime or, you know, some offense, but rather it's kind of a freewheeling examination of a certain point in time that points to something greater. So there's no answer to the crying of Lot 49 plot wise, but it's rather, like I say, it's like a slice of time that comments on something bigger.
0: So it's interesting you say that. Okay, so the way I read this book, and even though I said, what the fuck, um, I actually enjoyed the book. Um, I just didn't enjoy trying to figure out what the book is about. And because I'm a simpleton, my brain is always going to try and figure out what something is about first. And yet that being said, the entire time I uh, was reading this book, I actually, I think about um, almost a little bit more than a quarter through the book, I got a highlighter because there were so many passages that i basically found to be um philosophical and not philosophical in some sort of like uppity you know kant or i don't know It's like the only philosopher i know <laughs> you know um, and or um
1: what's his name the yeah, elon ex- musk exactly. <laughs> right right
0: so there were so but like there were so many passages that i was like this is genius commentary on society and human nature that i just started highlighting things and the very first time it kind of hit me what the book was good at i'll put it that way was when it was talking about um the main character's husband who used to work at a car lot and basically like what at a used car lot and how he described people's entire lives by the cars that they traded in um it was super fascinating to me, and those were the parts of the book that I found the strongest. My question is, right, and, and it's kind of an interesting question if I do say so myself, uh, is would he have been a better writer if he had written in the poor Richard's Almanac style where he was completely um, uh, dis disattached? Is disattached a word, Sean, or unattached? Unattached, right? Okay, You're yeah, distanced, me. distanced. D- just like unshackled. I want him unshackled from plot. I feel like in some ways plot is a shackle that maybe he feels he has to conform to or use so that he's not writing direct philosophy. But I don't see why he couldn't write um, poor Richard's almanac comical um asides and essays like almost like Gore Vidal so if you guys don't know this already Gore Vidal is my favorite writer ever Mm -hmm. and I'm just not sure that this guy needs plot but if you have a counter to that please give it to me um
1: I I think it's funny that you brought up Gore Vidal because I believe that Thomas Pynchon is the flip side of Gore Vidal like he's the
0: negative he's like the evil version of Gore Vidal (laughs) he's like the chaos with like the goatee I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm pretty sure Gorvadal is the evil version of Gorvadal. Uh,
1: Okay, okay. So he's just his own duality.
0: Yeah. Okay,
1: but uh, back to your question about um, does Pynchon need a plot? Um, and I think it's funny that you brought up that... Wouldn't it be funnier if he did, like, essays or, like, comedic asides or kind of, like, philosophical, like, one-offs? And yes and no, because... I've read every and novel and a lot of them are episodic where it's like you have your main characters and, you know, things happen to them. And Well, this I, is
0: episodic. This, this book's episodic yeah, this in my opinion. Yeah, this is super
1: episodic. But, you know, I think it goes, you know, uh, this is a postmodern book. Like this is clearly like a textbook example of a postmodern book.
0: Okay, can you do me a favor yeah. before you go on? Uh, I was reading criticisms of this book, and they're like, this is considered a postmodern masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I'm 36 years old, and I have made it this far through life pretending to know what postmodern means. And I feel like now is a good time to come clean and admit that I don't know what postmodern means. So if you could please um, describe it to me and hopefully for the listeners out there who also have been living their life in this deep shame of not knowing what that means, um, and I'll take the hit for them.
1: Oh okay, well uh let me get your uh membership, you know, starting uh starting kit here.
0: So okay.
1: and I mean I think it's different for everybody. I mean I think post mort uh post-modern, postmodern is as nebulous <laughs> <Post-madam>? a, Post <laughs> I I almost said postmortem. Um, yeah. it's as nebulous a term as you want to sound like you're intelligent. But to boil it down to me, anything that's postmodern Speaks to you in a way that says, Hey, you know what a literature story is, right? Well, you don't get the book if you haven't read other books. Like, if you gave this book to a literate caveman, he wouldn't get 90% of what's going on. But Mm -hmm. anybody that's, you know, understands the basic structure of a story. And what's to be expected? Pynchon takes that and he kind of warps it so that you understand it's uh, to even be more pretentious. Like, you know, when they talk about jazz, it's the notes. It's the notes they're not playing. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Right. Pynchon's not giving you the a uh, one plus one equals two. He's going like one plus one equals three figure it out. Like, why did I do that? Why didn't I make this more of like a rigid story structure? Why am I leaving things out? Why am I putting this in? And that's the kind of expectation of you whenever you pick up like a postmodern book.
0: So I I have a question. I have a question then. Does postmodern have to invert the normal forms Or can it also just be a reference? So, for instance, is Quentin Tarantino postmodern or is he simply homaging, right? Because he's not inverting the form. He's -hmm. just quite simply paying, like, part of the enjoyment. Like You can enjoy Quentin Tarantino even if you know nothing about movies, but there's more to be enjoyed about Quentin Tarantino if you know a ton about movies because you know he's referencing tons of movies, but he's not inverting the form right he's not leaving the notes out he's doing the opposite he's including everything so does postmodern have to be a subversive inversion of the normal forms that you're used to
1: no i think if anything like anything that's postmodern is a love letter because they just <clears> want <throat> to be innovative they're already saying like with a wink and a nudge hey you like books or like quentin tarantino it's like Hey, do you like movies? Do you like appropriate needle drop references? Like, well, boy, I've got something for you. And yet, they're inventing like their own little—they're inventing their own style, kind of off the cuff. Mm-hmm. So, *Pulp Fiction* is a fantastic postmodern movie. Like it—it's entertaining on its own, but if you—but the story structure, the way chronologically it's ordered. You have to understand film to get that. Oh, this is a flashback. This is taking place at a different time. But your mind, because it already understands how films work, is able to stitch it all together into a cohesive, you know, end game.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I just always suspected, not knowing what postmodern meant, that it was used kind of by like, I don't know, like old. Old critics, like like I would say um, conformists, to criticize people who are subversive, being like, oh, well, they're postmodern, they're postmodernist, they don't like the established forms, and therefore they're trying to invert them. Um, before we go too far into that, because I think we're getting away from the book, normally, even because this was your choice, mm-hmm. I would ask you to do the summary of this book. However, I think I should do it because I'm the more unfamiliar party and this is such a complicated and Byzantine novel that I think I should try and summarize the book so it'll give you uh, a clear indication of whether or not I understood this book at all. Well, you know what? I'd
1: love to hear your interpretation of what passes for a plot in The Crying of Flot
0: 49. So I'm going to make ado, it real simple. I'm going to make it real simple. Take this There's the page. a woman... There's a woman, her name is Oedipal? Is that how you pronounce it? Oedipa. Oedipa, excuse me, which is, by the way, is this a play on Oedipus? Oedip, you know, is this a play on Greek stuff?
1: Well, we'll talk about names because that's a big part of this book.
0: Okay, okay, so basically, long story short, she's this, she's this gal, she lives in California... She's married to kind of like a schlubby like radio DJ, and one day she finds out that her ex boyfriend died, and he turned out to be super rich, and he left her, like I guess a great fortune or something. He he or he left her a lot, Um, but in order for her to claim this thing, she has to basically go on this long journey of series of misadventures that often uh, involve hallucinogens uh, prescribed to her from her psychotherapist and along the way she thinks she discovers a conspiracy theory regarding her ex-boyfriend and a postal company. Like basically, she thinks her ex-boyfriend owned a postal company or his family owned it going like, hundreds of years back that was a rival to another postal company going hundreds of years back and she thinks that possibly this other postal company is now an underground society while at the same time she's trying to figure out what the hell her ex-boyfriend left her. Um, Do How close am I to the plot of this <laughs> fucking book?
1: <laughs> I think you nailed all the most uh, uh, salient points there. That, you know what, it's about a woman that finds herself embroiled in this mystery.
0: Yeah. And but which may not be a mystery.
1: Which may, not, may, be may not be entirely in her thing, head. Which I think is funny because if I had to say what this book means thematically, there's two major themes of this book, Sam. Okay. One is communication. Two is paranoia. And
0: so paranoia is obvious. Can we go? Yeah. We can get into paranoia later, but I'm curious what you mean by communication because I never thought of it.
1: The, I mean, the entire book is based on communication. It's the, like you said, the mystery of the Thurn and Texas, you mm-hmm. know, mail delivery system. What does that mean? It's, it's people sending letters to each other. It's communication. It's Oedipa seeing what is her, her deceased lover, In Verardi Pierce, what is he trying to tell her? You know, what is the message from the past that she's trying to receive? And her husband, Mucho Mas, he's a a DJ. And at one point, there's a, uh, like, I guess the uh, action scene in the book where her therapist, like, holds up his uh, clinic at gunpoint. But Mucho goes to interview Oedipus. And he's like, oh, state, uh, state your name. and Or uh, rather, he says, I'm going to say your name, and then we'll do the interview. And he says her name is Edna Mosh. And she's like, Mucha, why didn't you say my name? And he, he says something like, oh, over the, uh, over the radio waves, it all comes out the same. It'll make sense. So I think why I say communication is a big part of this is because... I want Pynchon to be trying to say that communication goes in several different ways. If you have a message to say that's important, it can go forwards in time, it can go backwards in time, or it can stay in the present. Are you with me?
0: Okay, so here's my question. Yeah. Why is communication important to him? And if it is important to him, why does he write the way he writes? Which, by the way, I mean, I, I hope we've given a clear enough example um, or uh, description of what Pynchon's writing style is like for anyone who hasn't read any Pynchon. The best way I can put it is that, to me, he is the—who's um, the guy that wrote The Maltese Falcon, Sean? Um, Dashiell Hammett? No, 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 no. You know, the guy wrote all those famous mysteries that starred uh, Humphrey Bogart in the movies. Right, uh, no. Raymond Chandler. Raymond, Raymond Chandler. Chandler. Okay, yeah. Okay, so imagine you combined Raymond Chandler with um, Philip K. Dick and Ben Franklin, and to me, you have um, you have uh, you know fucking uh, Thomas Pynchon. Like to me, he's he's the mystery version of Philip K. Dick, only a little bit more humorous. And my point being, like, why does this guy? Why does Pynchon care about communication? And if he cares so much about it. What is he trying to say with his incredibly complex writing style?
1: Because what is communication to an author? He's telling a story, but he's also pointing that that there are stories that existed before he started telling stories, and there are stories that are going to be told after he tells stories. And it's like, what is the value in storytelling? I actually have a, a highlight here about... Uh, communication, uh, where Edipa is first visiting one of Pierce's uh, self-made towns, I guess you want to call it, uh, the San Narcisco Valley, so the quote is, uh, it reminded of her to look downhill this noontime, some immediacy was there again, some promise of hierophany, printed circuit, gently
0: curving streets, private access to the water, book of the dead but is he saying that it's worthless to write anything if everything has already been written? Like, I still don't understand um, what he's trying to say.
1: Okay, well, let's, I think the perfect way that I can encapsulate what I'm trying to get across is, yeah. do you remember um, when, okay, so Pierce, he dies and he leaves Edipa as the executrix of his estate which yeah. means that she has to go look into all of his holdings. Because mm-hmm. she's not a lawyer, uh, she's given Metzger as a lawyer to help her along the process.
0: Which, met- all, by the way, former child actor, which is just a hilarious like little tidbit, it, it almost feels like he met a lawyer who was also a former child actor while living in Los Angeles. Yeah, and Metzger also
1: translates to butcher.
0: That's oh, a little, interesting.
1: little highlight because the names in this are important. But anyway, back to what I'm saying. And there's, do you remember the seduction scene? Yes. Okay. So Metzger, he was a former child actor that's mm-hmm. turned into a lawyer and he's trying to seduce Oedipa. Like
0: mm-hmm. they're
1: drinking like Jack Daniels or something. And what comes on the TV, Sam? I don't remember. It's a movie that he was in. Do you remember oh. it?
0: No, I don't remember the movie.
1: So Metzger, as a child actor, he was in a movie where, as a little boy, him and his dog and his dad, are like driving around in the Mediterranean Ocean in like I guess a handmade submarine, like a like a cheap submarine, in mm-hmm. order to thwart the Nazis. Yeah. Okay. And in the mo- when they're airing the movie on TV they're playing it out of order. Like they're playing the reels in different sequences. Yes. And Metzger is like gambling with Oedipa about, in like kind of like a strip poker kind of way, about what actually happens. But it's Mm -hmm. really hard to tell because the movie is being played out of sequence. So, A, why is this postmodern? Because you have to understand what a movie is, Right. You have to understand how movies work, like how they're sure. shot, you know. And three, Metzger is gambling against Edipa that she doesn't know how movies work. You would think that a story about a little boy, his dog, and his dad trying to stop the Nazis is going to have a happy ending, right? Yeah. And at one point, they drown completely subverting like what you're ex- expected of it that i think is what pynchon is trying to say is are, are we watching a movie being told out of order like what are we not getting when pynchon tells his story How, okay, imp- so go ahead no go on go, no you go on well how important is it that when we hear a story we hear it correctly
0: but I guess the point is, why ask such a question? Like, why is he so fascinating with, fascinated with the idea that a story can be told um, against the forms? Like, to me, this is subversive. Like, what can be gained from reading stories or viewing stories that are that out of order? Um, because, you know, for all Pulp Fiction, it's not that hard to figure out in Pulp Fiction what happened first and what happened last.
1: Right. Um... I think here's another quote. Outward patterns, a hieroglyphic sense of concealed meaning, of an intent to communicate. I think Pynchon is, he's telling this crazy story because he's saying there's a message hidden in it that's bigger than all of us. Or maybe there's not. That's the other paranoia aspect. Are stories supposed to be an entertaining diversion? Or is there Mm -hmm. something larger that we need to know? Why why do humans need to tell stories? Like, where can we start, like, uh, breaking it down?
0: Now you get at something really interesting. So I wanted to bring this up uh, at some point in this podcast. Um, There was a TV show on AMC called Lodge 49 which was clearly a tribute to this book while not a direct adaptation at all, okay? And it revolves around this kind of, like, fraternity lodge, you know, like, for, like, adults. Like, just, like, basically people who hang out, drink beer, and occasionally, like, perform kind of, like, semi-cult rituals because they're a lodge. And within this lodge, there's a possible mystical mystery, right, that everybody in the lodge... Is invested in like they are invested in solving the mystical mystery that exists within this lodge yet every time you think that the that the mysticism of the lodge is real the show does something to actually be like no it's not real at all um and in fact the pursuit of trying to figure it out is what's real but then at the same time one scene later They'll do something to suggest that the mysticism is real. So they never give you a concrete answer on whether or not the pursuit of meaning is all that matters or if there actually is meaning that we are pursuing. And I think that kind of gets to what you just said, which is why I decided to bring up Lodge 49 right now because I think it directly connects to that TV show, which is clearly um, referencing this book in an homage to this writer. So I do understand that a little bit. Sean, I also want to ask you another question. Um, yeah. is Pynchon a show off? And does he think that it is good for all of our brains to have to try and decipher what could have been said more plainly?
1: No, like I said, I admire Pynchon. I mean, uh, when I said that, I think you although, can admire him for being a show off. Right. But you know, he does the show off thing without, Showing off, I, I mean, I don't know how I can kind of say it. Like he, other people are doing stick figures, and he's doing like these remarkable, like beautiful watercolors. And in his writing, it's it, it becomes apparent that he has inc- like something incredible going on in his brain. Like he's just got these fireworks firing off in his head. Um, and even because I would consider. Did you All right, Sam. Do you think Thomas Pynchon is funny?
0: 1000%. Not only is he funny, he's like what he's like reading velvet. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he uses words is luxurious. You know what I'm saying? It's a type of funny, but it's also like a it's like a warm bubble bath. It's like if you could if you could take George Carlin and put him in a bubble bath with you and you've got Thomas Pynchon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I read all my books on the Kindle, so I've got, like, tons of notes um, just ranging from like, kind of like a, mun- like a mundane, out-of-nowhere word. Like, uh, yeah. somebody gets kicked out of the army, and he uses the term cashiered. And if you yeah. look it up, it means dismissed from the army disgracefully. Uh, mm-hmm. Later on, when um, uh, Metzger and Oedipa are sleeping together, the teenagers outside... They sing them like a love song, but Pynchon Mm -hmm. rather uses the word chivalry, like S-H-I-V-A-R-E-E. And it's just like these obscure words that he plucks out of the ether and yet puts them in the book that says, is this showing off or is he just that dedicated to finding the ideal word? But that's not how you spell chivalry.
0: It's not not chivalry.
1: it's, It's chivalry.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah so like, you got to be super smart to read this book, Sean. Like, this, I think this book, Sean, um, I'm not trying to blow smoke out your ass, uh, but it kind of shows what a master you are um, in just reading and like literary criticism. I think that, you know, if this were a movie, I would understand the language of a movie a lot better than I would understand the language of this book. But that being said, you know, I really enjoyed. Uh, The few Philip K. Dick books that I read, but it never had, it was never the plot I enjoyed. It was always the asides. But one thing I'll say about Pynchon, because I think he's an even more complex writer than Dick, is that you have, I really, and I'm going to do this, you have to read his books twice, I think. And I, and I feel the same way about great movies. And here's why. And I've made this uh, statement many times on the record and many different podcasts, which is that the human brain, when is in when it's taking a story in, is designed to be thinking what is next, right? When it's ingesting a scene, it's not completely present in the scene. The human brain, the first time, is actually saying, okay, what's next while it's present in the scene? So it's not totally present, Um And as a result, it misses things that the creator of the artwork or the story is intending for you uh, to consume. So as a result, a great movie is always better appreciated the second time around because you are more in the present because you're not focused on what is going to happen next since you already know what is going to happen next. And I feel like with Pynchon... Even though the next book I ever read from him, I will do my absolute best to not give a shit about the plot. I know while reading it, my brain will still be trying to figure out the plot, which is why I'm going to have to read it twice. Because for me, the enjoyable part of the book are the asides, are the rant, rants, if you want to be simplistic about it. Um, and I, for you, I think you're able to see all the sort of almost hidden visual cues in there that I probably wouldn't be able to see. But from a pure philosophical content standpoint, I think I would enjoy the book more a second time around because my brain would be able to let go of trying to decipher a ridiculous plot.
1: Yeah, and I mean, to circle it back around and tie like a little bow on it, um, that's, like I said, postmodern. This is a book that needs you to understand How other books work. And when you say that you're like reading something and your mind's like reaching out for that next um, plot point to hook onto, Mm -hmm. there's nothing there. There's no foothold. You're just getting these seemingly unconnected events. Uh, I would say like not seeing the forest for the trees. That if you get hung up on like these like little specific things and don't let yourself get immersed. In like the way the story's getting told, in the jokes, the philosophical, you know one so- like off like offhandedly thrown about. I think that's where the true joy of the book lies. That's why Pynchon wrote the book. He didn't write it so that you could be like, Oh, well that was a satisfying, you know, mystery. He wrote it because he's trying to put another mystery into the world. Like, he's trying it, to avoid the end of mysteries by adding more mysteries.
0: You said he was painting the Sistine Chapel, but I was going to ask you, is it trite and tacky to basically compare him to Picasso? No, I wouldn't say
1: that, That you know, that doesn't apply. I would actually, if I had to compare Pynchon to a painter, it would be Hieronymus Bosch. You know who I'm talking about?
0: <laughs> no, of course not. I never know... Ever who you're talking about or what you're talking about when you recommend something to me, you and Sam, I are so far apart on like what we consume. Sam, you've
1: seen like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Um, he does the, he did the it's the three panelled about like the Garden of Eden and then Earth and then Hell, and it's okay. like full of like little details of like little horrific figures or like
0: fantastical animals. I like, know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. I know, I know the exact, the, the three paneled one on the Garden of Good and Evil. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. pinching yeah. puts so yeah. much little details into his work that yeah. adds to the whole. But the whole, if you
0: look at it, it looks like fucking nonsense. <laughs> but okay. When you so start... I have a question then. Go ahead. I have a question. Sorry. Um, what is closer to the spirit of Pynchon cinematically? Um, and this is kind of a trick question and also kind of not a trick question. Is it Inherent Vice or Mahalan Drive, which is not based off of Pynchon?
1: Oh, I would definitely put him more towards Lynch. Easily. Easily.
0: That's what I'm saying. Like the way you're describing it, especially with the comparison to that uh, artist, to me, Mahalan Drive seems like a perfect fit right there, where Lynch is just creating this tapestry of the world in its in its in its uh in its light and its darkness. God, I hate saying light and darkness. I sound like <laughs> such a hack. But it was just it's it's the truth though. Like to me that it almost seems more pinching. In than inherent vice and i don't want to go to i don't want to go into inherent vice and you know because this isn't a movie podcast, and I oftentimes bring up movies because it's my specialty but I do want to ask you a question because i've only ever consumed two Pynchon contents one is this book and the other is the movie inherent Vice mm-hmm. does Pynchon have an obsession over Nazis because Nazis play a part in both works
1: I, I think it plays more into like his nod of like his bizarre version of historical fiction. Um, because Nazis were a real thing, right? They were like, right. you know, for all their evil, they were still an important thing. And yep. to have um, Oedipus her therapist was an
0: ex Nazi. Um,
1: I think so that's the reference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> claims he, he was he
0: claims he was a medical he was a he was a medical intern for the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Which just shows the show, like, how fucking funny Pynchon is. And the, the name of the doctor, do you remember the name of the doctor? No, I don't remember. Dr. Hilarious?
0: Yeah, so, oh yeah, that's right, Dr. Hilarious. I do remember because I thought this was a ridiculous name for the, like, I was, I was like, is he really being this on the nose on purpose? Alright, let's talk about names.
1: Because yeah, I think this is one of the, the book's standout features. This book has the best character names of all time. And it's like you said, you can't tell whether or not Pynchon is like just taking the piss, or if the names are supposed to mean something. So you have mm-hmm. something so on the nose like Doctor Hilarious, and then yeah. you have something like Metzger, which is supposed to be a lawyer helping Edippe, but his name actually means butcher. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: were there any standout names for you, Sam?
0: I mean, to me, it was it was it was Oedipa just because I couldn't get away from, like, what does this mean? Because I do know something about the story of Oedipus, but I didn't see her sleeping with her mother or uh or her, her son or poking her eyes out. So I, I couldn't understand why he named her Oedipa.
1: No, like, I, I don't—I've thought about it before, and it's kind of like— if you think of Oedipus, right— yeah, that's where you're supposed to, you know, sleep sure. with your mother, right? Right. And then there's like, Edipul. There should be like an opposite where it's like you want. to But sleep the Oedipal is just father. the Oedipal
0: complex. It still references Oedipus.
1: Right, but I think there's like, like specifically like a a different term when it's like a daughter sp- wanting to sleep with her father. Yeah. And uh, the the dead lover, Pierce. I would think you would put as kind of. I a father figure?
0: Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of like a father figure. Because he's a rich, older man who's left her an inheritance like he were, like she were his daughter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So
1: that's where I think that's the only—I'm grasping at straws, but that's the only kind of tie I can think of with Oedipa.
0: So here's my question. Does he give a shit about names or does he not give a shit about names? Because there's some— Either filmmaker or author, I can't remember this. I was talking with a friend a long time ago, and I was admiring how little of a shit he gave about names... It was Mm -hmm. like there was no thought in it whatsoever. It was like he he might as well have named his characters Joe Schmo. He just, like, didn't want to put any thought into character names because he didn't think they mattered. And the problem is I hear the name Oedipa, and I think, all right, meaning, right, subtext. But I hear the name Dr. Hilarious or Hilaria, whatever you call him, and I think doesn't give a shit, like, on the nose. (laughs) Right. And yet at the same time, once again, is this author, is Pynchon all about duality? Is he just all about like, oh, you think I'm about this? Well, I'm about this. And if you thought I was about this, well, I'm actually about this, right? Like, is it just a fucking, is it a, is it a closed loop in which you can never find the beginning or the end? I, I think it's like
1: him having fun with the detail work because. Yes, absolutely. You, you can give, you know, and you can name any of your characters Joe mm-hmm. Schmoe. But to have a character named Mike Fallopian yeah like that's fucking hilarious, or uh, Peter Pinguid, which right. penguid means fat or greasy, like mm-hmm. all of his names have these double meanings uh the the playwright that puts on the play that's the the center mystery his yeah. name is Richard Warfinger, which means mm-hmm. like the keeper of a wharf like a keeper yeah. of like a safe haven kind of thing. Randolph Driblet, does it mean Obliette, like a prison that you throw people into, or is it just like a funny play on words? Uh, Stanley Kotex kind of sounds like, isn't there like a woman's undergarment, like Kotex (laughs) brand? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Sean, can I just point out that The Crying of Lot 49 is supposed to be his most accessible book. I mean, just think about that. This is supposed to be his most accessible book. I mean, honestly, and I'm not including myself in this category, but there should be a warning on these books, kind of like how rap CDs have parental advisories. There should be a warning on this book, which should be like only for geniuses.
1: (laughs) I think people call it his most accessible because of the length. This book is only about 187 pages long.
0: That's all it is, yeah.
1: Because I honestly think that if I was casually recommending somebody like where to start with Pynchon, I would actually pick Mason and Dixon. Um, okay. And that book clocks in at like 850 plus pages. But wow, that one is an incredible like historic fiction about two best friends having mm-hmm. adventures, trying mm-hmm. to cope with like a, a tragic loss. And in the end, it's it's like his most emotionally fulfilling book. Because mm-hmm. this book, Crying of Lot 49, this one has the uh, classic now made famous soprano ending where it's yeah. like, what What happened? What? what, what? <laughs> That's the way you're ending it? Yeah, right. It just kind of ends on this dull thud. What did you think about the ending? You, how did that hit you?
0: Didn't hit me uh, poorly at all because to me it made sense, right? It was the idea, am I paranoid? Or is this real? That's all it was. Uh, it, to me, it made perfect sense. It, it, if anything, it was less of the uh, the black screen, the black frame in The Sopranos, because it it made complete sense with the book, which is at the very end of the book. Well, I was right, right before the very end of the book, she decides it all means nothing. And then at the very last minute of the book, she's like, wait a minute. It does mean something. I am on to something. And once again, this is where I tie it to uh, the show Lodge 49, which is that essentially what that show was saying was um, uh, God is not real, but the search for God is meaningful, but also God might mm-hmm. be real. Literally, that's what it said. It was saying God is not real, but the search for God is meaningful, but also God might be real, right? So the last statement contradicts the first statement. Yeah,
1: no, that's fascinating. Um, the whole spiritual aspect of, like, the mystery of...
0: Right, so not, is not, there not to a say that there's meaning? God in this book. Not to say right. there's God in this book. No, but there's the there's is The point is there is meaning in her search, okay? That's for sure. But at the same time, He's saying in one breath the cert that what she's searching for is not real, but he's also saying in the next breath, but it might be real. So he's kind of saying, look, man, I don't know what's real and what's not real, but the mm-hmm. only thing I do know that is real is the search for meaning. Right, and let me give like another little
1: highlighted clue I have here. All right, yeah. so this is a quote if miracles were, as Jesus Arable had postulated years ago on the beach at Mazatlan, intrusions into this world from another, a kiss of cosmic pool balls, then so must be each of the knights post-horns. So I think what Pinch is trying to say is, what is Oedipus, in her search to make meaning of this? Is it all just coincidences? Like, how could everything line up so perfectly bizarre? Um... And I think that is a beautiful metaphor for anybody's like struggle to find meaning in this life because one day- It could
0: also suggest that if you tie enough pins, if you take enough photos and yarn and thumbtacks and you put them on your wall, you'll find connections where there weren't any.
1: Yeah. You'll find your Pepe
0: Sanchez. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So- Every day I'm
1: knocking on the door. Hello. (laughs) Hello. There's a
0: ghost so the town. Quote, we're, we're giving him a lot of depth, right? To which there is. But what we're also seeing is a lighthearted master of words. And I guess my question is, and I, and I asked this before, and I, I feel like you kind of uh, danced around it, but mm-hmm. is he best served as an author of fiction? I'm still not entirely sure this guy is best served as an author of fiction. Or, or, hear me out is he not only best served as an author of fiction, but is he just, quite frankly, the prelude or the original form of that other guy who killed himself that people love? You know who I'm talking about? The tennis player author?
1: Oh, um, David Foster Wallace.
0: Yeah, is David Foster Wallace just doing his best Thomas Pynchon impression? All right, so
1: here's what I'm going to say about David Foster Wallace. I think you're exactly spot on that he was doing a Thomas Pynchon impression. But mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace is one of the best essayists I have ever read. His books right, on right. essays... So, so,
0: yeah, so this is why I brought this up. Exactly. This is why I brought this up, Sean. Okay, so my point is this. I prefer David Foster Wallace's essays and public speakings mm-hmm. to his actual novel. Which, by the way, the reason I... I I quite frankly don't like that novel is that I don't want to flip back and forth in a book like like a tennis match, which is what he intended. Mm-hmm. If if that I even tried to get the audible version of that book to do a thing where like they should make a form of that book where you don't have to manually flip back and forth. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. The book you're referencing is that, in,
0: Infinite Jest, right? Yeah, Infinite Jest, right, because the point of Infinite Jest is the correct way to read it is you read chapter one, and then you read an appendix at the end of the book, and then you read chapter two, and then another appendix, and he wants you to be going back and forth like it's a ball crossing the net in a tennis match. However, I find that extremely laborious, and I'm not Mm -hmm. against it if someone does it for me, right? (laughs) If someone literally reads the book to me, and I think Thomas Pynchon— would be much better. You told me not to listen to the Audible version, which I didn't. However, I would love for Thomas Pynchon, if he were alive, to read that book aloud to me.
1: Mm -hmm. And I I think to talk a little bit more about Infinite Jest, the the way you're talking about it is because it's written that there's footnotes to the main text, which that's postmodern as hell because you have to understand what a footnote is. You have to understand why Wallace would choose to put the footnotes in because he wanted you to be flipping back and forth
0: in the pages like a tennis match. I think Because he was a tennis player, which yeah. is just like never ever been done before. It's a he's it's, actually giving you a physical exercise while reading.
1: It's yeah, it's formatting bleeding into the book. There's a, another uh equally pretentious book called House of Leaves. I think the name is Daniel Lewski. But mm-hmm. in it, towards like as you read the book, it's a horror novel, and then towards like the middle of the book, the way that the text is, it starts like yeah. being written in spirals, like yeah. the text itself is blocked around spirals, and it's just it's so pretentious. And uh, I think what the easiest way that you could read uh, Infinite Jest is if you were reading it on like an internet browser, and there were like mm-hmm. hyperlinks that would make it easier yeah. to bounce back and forth. Now with Pinchin. I would love to hear him, like, write an essay, but I mm-hmm. think the way that he writes his novels, he's saying all that he wants to say, like, commenting on the time. Because who's Edipa Moss when she starts the book? She's just some bored South Californian housewife, right? Right. And how does she end the book? She ends it with she, her eyes are opened. That there's something greater she, in the she's world. She's
0: Humphrey. She's Humphrey Bogart, also in Raymond, like in a Raymond Chandler book. Right. Whatever that guy's name was. But here's my problem, Sean. Um, here, here's what I want to kind of end on uh, regarding this book because it is a short novel, um, and we'll and we'll keep it under an hour podcast. But here's how I kind of want to end this. It seems like, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like most of Pynchon's books take place in California. And quite frankly, I am as as a lifelong East Coaster, I am not interested in the Malays and Inui, however you say that word. Ennui? of life in Yeah, inui, ennui? Uh, Of ennui <laughs> of life in California. I don't care that these people that it's sunny every day, that these people are bored and like have to make up meaning for themselves. Like I don't find that interesting. I actually find it annoying and pretentious and like get over yourself. It's sunny all the time. I'm so sorry that like you're all bored because mm-hmm. you don't because the because the pace of your lives are so slow. And it's not slow like how farmers would be slow who's got manual labor. Like, you're just chilling in this place where it's one season all the time. So, as a result, like, you don't know what to do with yourself. Most people on the East Coast, you know, we're in the rat race. Like, we would love downtime and would never complain about it. So, to me, whatever the plots of his books are, I'm not sure I'm interested in them. But what I am interested in, very much so, are is this man's thoughts are his thoughts. Like I think they're fascinating and I highly recommend this book based on that. But I would prefer to see him as an essayist and just get rid of the bullshit which I feel like <laughs> he's only doing to sell books. Well I, I think, feel like his well, true calling is polem is, is polemicism.
1: Well I mean that's the whole thing. Like he's he's notoriously a recluse. Like there's yeah. no modern photos of, of him. There's like one yeah. photo of him when he when he's in the Navy, and like that's it, yeah. yeah, but that's what I think I'm trying to say when I say that this book is about communication. It's about you hear the story, Pynchon had buried under there the meaning that you're supposed to find, and he wants you to read his funny, engaging story of a bunch of cartoon characters and try to find the bigger
0: meaning underneath of it. And okay, my, my last counterpoint to that, um, if this were the East Coast, someone would be like, hey, man, uh, fucking quit wasting time and tell me directly. Like, he's only yeah, got the yeah. fucking time to do that because he's in California. Like, but over here, like, dude, quit the bullshit and like, just tell me what I need to know because I'm late for the subway and I already got to go get a hot dog. Well, I mean, halfway through the – I mean, not even halfway.
1: I think it's like three-fourths through the book. Pynchon basically explains exactly what's going on in the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I and, and this does. is probably he, the only book he ever does that.
1: Right, because like you said, you don't like the, the you think that a lot of his books are set in California and as earlier I stated, half of his books are like historical fiction. So they take place all over the world. As a matter of fact, two of his books, Mason and Dixon and Bleeding Edge, are East Coast books. But his West Coast books, his West Coast series I would say, which is uh, Crying of Lot Forty Nine, Inherent Vice, mm-hmm. Vineland. they are all these like lazy Californian yeah. tales. But I think I
0: wanna...
1: it seems so trite to you because he made up that trope. He made up the yeah, interesting that there's something sinister in behind the sunshine, which you know David Lynch he would take the ball and run with with uh, Blue mm-hmm. Velvet, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I, I think it, it seems trite now looking back at it because he was the guy that invented it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to definitely read the East Coast stuff because I really am not into the lazy West Coast culture. It just does not interest me. All right, Sean, we got to wrap up. Any final thoughts on this book? No, it's a great book. Um, I don't think we gave away any spoilers. There's still
1: so nope. much that we could talk about plot-wise, but um, yeah. I think but thematically... But who about the plot? Yeah. Exactly. I don't, the plot's not important. Don't read this, this book, book This
0: book is a technical marvel of genius. There's just no question about it.
1: yeah, he like I, he's bar none one of the best best there ever was to put pen to paper.
0: There's no question. He's one of the best writers I've ever read. I'd put him up there with like uh with Edward Gibbon. It's just the difference is I'm interested in what Edward Gibbon's story is, which is the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and I'm more interested in this guy's thoughts on culture and society. All right, Sean, it's been a pleasure, and we'll do it again soon. And hopefully this one will actually get recorded. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. All right, until
1: next time, Sam.
0: Later. All right, thanks, guys. And, guys, by the way, please um, rate and review us on iTunes. It helps a lot. Sorry to beg, but I got to beg. All right, see ya. <laughs>